Hey, I'm Roberta Blevins, and this is Life After MLM, a podcast where we worked and the stigma of failure in an industry systemically designed for you to fail. Join us as we dive into the real life stories of survivors, experts, and advocates to debunk the common myths and fallacies of cults, scams, and multi-level marketing. Hey, Hunbots and Hunbros. I am actually really excited for today's episode because it's been a long time in the making and it's even me like working past my own issues and like talking about this topic publicly, which is something in my own purity culture upbringing was very taboo. So today we're going to be talking about sex. And the first thing that comes to mind is the song that always made me so embarrassed as a kid. Let's talk about sex, baby. And we're going to. We absolutely are. Um, But it's kind of an interesting twist because I have a Christian pastor who actually wants to talk about how sex is celebrated in the Bible and how this whole toxic masculinity, anti-sex, purity culture thing is actually kind of against God's wishes. It's a really interesting conversation. And I think if any of the things that I've said thus far has sparked your interest even a little bit, you're really going to enjoy it. But because we do talk about sex, this is an 18 and up episode. I think most of my episodes are 18 and up, but I know some of you have kids that listen along. So I just wanted to give you a heads up. Maybe you want to listen to this first before listening to this as a family, but it is a really, really great and educational episode. And to be perfectly honest, I never thought I would make anything like this. And to date, it is one of my favorite conversations that I have ever had. Another trigger warning we get into is we talk about purity culture in the 1980s, growing up like that, and we get into the AIDS crisis as well. So if any of these topics are triggering, I just wanted to give you that heads up. Also, I want to let you guys know that both Kayla and Michelle are going to start reaching out to people for interviews. So if you get an email from Kayla or Michelle and you wonder if it's legit, I'm telling you right now that it is. We're working on a lot of stuff on the back end. And one of those things is having some of my friends to help me get through that application list because my ADHD, every time I look at it is like, nope, not today. So Kayla and Michelle are going to help me keep an eye out. If you are interested in being on the show, I have someone who is going through those applications. So please, please, please go ahead and fill it out. You can find it on robertablevins.com. Before we move over, we are actually making a pod website as well. It will be housed there, but for now it is on robertablevins.com. And if you're listening right now and you're like, I don't even know if I have a story. Let me tell you what I'm looking for. The end of the year is coming up and the end of the year, we do all kinds of bonus episodes and all kinds of different themes. And if you have a story that fits any of these themes, or you know of a story and you just want to tell me that fits any of these themes, fill out that application or hit me up and let's get you on the show. October, we focus on true crime stories. November, we focus on cult stories. And in December, we focus on like really fun stories. Um, so also if there's somebody you've been dying to hear from, if there's an interview, you're like, Roberta, please reach out to this person, see what we can get. Let me know. That's what December is for. I already have a couple people lined up that I think you're going to be really excited for. But if there's anybody that you're seeing on social media, anybody that has a book that's come out, a TV show, anything like that, that fits any of the genres that we talk about, and you think I have a chance, let me know and I will do my best. 
other than that, enjoy this episode. It is so good. And I will see you next week. Welcome back to another episode of Life After MLM. We're going to dive a little deeper into purity culture today. I have somebody who knows quite a bit more about it than I do. When I got the email, I was like, yes, when can we chat? So I'd like to welcome to the show, Pastor Rob. Hey, how are you doing? Hey, good, Roberta. Thank you for having me on the show. I feel honored to be asked to be on your program. So thank you. I'm super excited. I got your email. Your wife, Amy, listens and she was like, oh my gosh, you have to hear this purity culture episode. And you listened to it and you emailed me and said, I have stuff to add. I agree with what you're saying. Let's talk about it from like a biblical standpoint because you are a pastor. And I said, yes, I want to do this. I am very much respectful of religions. It's just the culty stuff we don't like. So whatever you believe, that's great. If religion stuff is a little too much, skip it. I'll see you next week. But we're going to get into this. We're going to talk about purity culture. And I am really, really excited to talk to you today, Pastor Rob. So let's get started. And I'm going to let you take it away. Sure. Yeah, so I, I've been pastoring about 17 years. And when I first started here pastoring this church, I don't know what it was. It was something in the water, but I, I did a bunch of weddings like my first, well, probably two, three years into being here. All of a sudden there was just a like, I think I did one summer, I did four or five weddings in the span of like two or three months, which was a lot of fun. And really, like I loved doing weddings. I loved, you know, seeing couples and being involved with that aspect of their lives. But I always do premarital counseling with them. When I do weddings, I always, you know, like four or five sessions at least to just hopefully set them up for success. And of course, one of the things that you got to talk about is you got to talk about sex. And so, you know, so I, I would always start the conversation just asking like, okay, so what what have you heard? What have you been exposed to? What messages have you heard concerning sex specifically from, from a religious point of view? So like, you know, church or youth group or your family, you know, what, what did you hear? And a lot of times, you know, not all the time, but a lot of times I would hear just kind of, well, nothing. You know, in other words, you know, so they, they would go to church that are, you know, they've been raised in the church and that, but they you know, the message that they got was either it was like, well, they never really talked about it. It was one of these taboo subjects that we just don't talk about or and or it was, well, I was told that it's really bad if you're not married and don't have sex or you're going to get either pregnant or you're going to get an STD and you don't want that to happen. And so so don't have sex. It's it's not a good thing. And then it's like, well, when you then when you get married, and it's like, then you're supposed to like be able to jump in and have this all figured out and, and totally be ready to go. And and obviously it doesn't work like that. And so I started kind of sort of puzzling over that. Like, what is it that the church is doing or not doing? Why is this the only message that is getting out from the church? And then I started to, you know, I would read stuff about purity culture. I um I grew up during the time purity culture was a big thing. I wasn't really too immersed in it myself, although I was I felt like I was kind of on the edges of it. You know, I was in college when Joshua Harris's book, So I Kissed Dating Goodbye, came out, and uh, there were a couple others like that. And I don't think I ever read that. I think my wife did, but she wasn't a fan of it. She was a little more familiar with that sort of purity culture stuff. I don't know that it made it up to where I grew up in Canada quite as much as it did like in West Michigan, where I went to school. And I started to become familiar with this. And it was like, this is this is really strange stuff. This is this is a real distortion of what I think the biblical message is. Is on on sex, you know, purity culture. One of the things that it does is it says that if you, I mean, even the name of it, purity culture, says if you want to be pure, here's what you need to do, and it creates what I would call in in from a sort of from a biblical Christian point of view. I, you know, it's it's a legalistic kind of thing. It says if you want to be accepted by God, 
you've got to perform these certain things, you know, which, and, and there's like minutia type things in some ways. It's like your skirt length, you know, your shoulder straps, all that stuff. And the, the mindset is this is how you create your purity. And then of course, from there, it's like, well, you give your purity to your future husband. And, and there's other stuff, which I'll maybe say a little bit more about, which probably, you know, many of your listeners are familiar with. It's this idea that your, you know, your future husband is this untamed sexual beast and it's your job then to keep him pure and it's your job to you know not seduce him and not create an opportunity where his hormones are going to run unchecked which has all kinds of problems that stem from that and so i began noticing this and i like to write and so i started writing some things down and just kind of work it out on my own mind it ended up becoming a book i wrote a book that came out in 2013 it's not in print anymore the the publisher is no longer in in business but but i i essentially i said i've got to find a way to offer a corrective to what I'm seeing. Because on the one hand, you get this very legalistic approach. You get this approach that says our purity is defined by what we do sexually, or more accurately, what we don't do sexually. But then on the other hand, you know, you you see the, well, what happens is people who grow up in that, they tend to rebel against it, right? I mean, anytime you put rules in place, it's like, you know what, they come to a point where they say, you know what, this is ridiculous. No one's going to tell me what to do. And then they tend to break all the rules. It's like, you know, free for all. But on the other hand, you know, you see people who sometimes what that that turns into is just like it's anything goes. And so from a biblical point of view, I wanted to say, I think there's a better viewpoint here. I think there's a better vantage point. And so I wrote a book and essentially I try to make the case in the book that the biblical point of view on sex is, well, it's, it's at least three things. The first is that sex is not primarily about just technique. It's not about physically what you do with your body. It's bigger than that. And it's meant to be, I would I would argue, it's meant to be better than that. It's meant to be sort of the completion of two people who come together and are vulnerable and transparent in every aspect of their life. In other words, the biblical narrative, the Garden of Eden, you know, you've got Adam and Eve, they're, they're there. And then the last line of the story before things go wrong is while they were both naked and they felt no shame, which I take that to mean not just, oh, hey, they didn't have any clothes on, so they must have been having fun in the bed or something like that. But they were actually able to be so incredibly vulnerable and transparent with each other that they're sharing every part of who they are. They're they're able to be open about, you know, today we would, you could describe it emotionally, mentally, spiritually, whatever else. There's nothing that keeps them guarded from one another. And what I would say is that that's, that's the ideal. In other words, if you really want to enjoy quote unquote nakedness, it's not just about whether or not you're wearing clothing, but it's actually about, are you able to share your hopes and dreams? Are you able to share your worries, your fears, your concerns with another person? Are you able to actually let down your guard with another person and let them see all of you? Okay, sin enters the world. And interesting, the very first thing that we're told after that is, okay, now they realize they're naked and all of a sudden this is a big problem. So it's always funny to me that the biblical description of how sin comes into the world is framed by this, they were naked and felt no shame, and now they're naked and they felt shame. And it's like, so it's like, that's the first effect of what sin does in the world. It's like, before you even talk about sex, and you've got to look at how does sin affect our ability to be vulnerable with people. And it turns out it, it actually has a massive effect. And if you look today, one of the challenges that many people have in relationship and, and thinking specifically in marriage, and to be really stereotypical here, men have a lot of trouble with this typically, right? Because our culture has said, look, if you want to be a man, you've got to be tough. You've got to have this really, it's like toxic masculinity idea. You've got to have this veneer about you and this facade that says you are rugged, you're strong, 
you're not weak. You don't show anybody your, you know, the chink in your armor, so to speak. You just, you know, you've got this. Okay, to use biblical language, those are fig leaves, right? Those are coverings that we're putting on ourselves to show that we are that we are significant. And but but they're guarding ourselves. They're actually protecting ourselves from letting other people see us. And in, you know, we do that in all kinds of relationships, but in the context of marriage, it's like it's really it's damaging, right? It's because we're not meant to just let's go have sex. It, we're meant to be vulnerable in every aspect of who we are. We're meant to let down that guard. We're meant to, we're meant to share ourselves with others. And and as I said, men I think typically have a harder time doing that. And in part because culture has created this sort of this mindset that says you've got to be tough. The toxic masculinity, absolutely, I see it. It goes hand in hand with purity culture, and yeah. it is really interesting. Like you said, like for some reason, it's put on the woman to be the one that has to protect the man from his, you know, his sinful thoughts. Right. Right. His, and his, I'm like, right. how, how am I in charge of that? Right. That's right. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Masculinity. We've created this whole way of, and that is sort of the, like you said, I think you say it goes hand in hand. That's sort of the opposite, the mirror image maybe of how purity culture distorts, you know, sexuality. And, and again, from biblical point of view, as God designed it, it's like, Look in the magazine rack at the grocery store, right? Like you see Cosmopolitan, you see all these things. What are they telling you? They're saying, well, you know, here's seven tips that you need to have these, you know, mind-blowing orgasms or whatever else it is. The ironic thing, of course, is that every month they have to come up with something new. It's like, because it's like, obviously they're trying to sell magazines, but it's like, there's this mindset that says sex is all about the technique. And I would say, well, yeah, okay. There's, I suppose there's room for that. I know nothing against it, but then what about this other side to it? What about this side that says you're created for something much better? You're created for this vulnerability and this intimacy with another person where you let that guard down and where you open up and share vulnerability and intimacy is literally the best part about being in a committed relationship with somebody, knowing that you have somebody that you can come home to or wherever you're at and you can just let it go and say, this is what happened. And then they're like, that sucks. I love you. And and you can be yourself. You don't have to worry about the fig leaves in your life. You can leave all the fig leaves at the door and you walk in completely naked without shame this right. is all metaphorical. I mean, if you're into that, like go on, but you know, <laughs> metaphorically you walk into your home, you should be walking in vulnerable and right. naked and that's open right. and saying, this is me. I think that's the ultimate goal. I mean, at least it was for me when deciding to get married, I wanted a partner that right. I could be like that with. Right. And I, you know, again, I'm speaking in very broad terms here. I actually think that's what many men want, but in a way they they don't always know that that's what they want, right? Like, because I think we're wired for it. I think we're created for this. We need it. And yet it is so overwhelmingly terrifying. It's, again, to return to the biblical narrative, they both realize they're naked. What do they do? They hide, right? Because vulnerability is a really frightening thing. You know, you can sort of pull back the fig leaves a little bit and and disclose maybe little things like, yeah, someone cut me off in traffic and I was a little irritated. That's That's a little tiny vulnerability, right? But then to say, you know what, I'm terrified about my future, or I'm really afraid for our kids or, you know, whatever else, that's a whole different level of vulnerability. And our culture, I think broad brush does not encourage that, you know, because here's, here's the other thing. I think when you think about how do men and women approach sex, again, broad brush stereotypes here. Okay. But, and and so it's not always going to hold up in quite this way. In fact, I think there's some pretty notable exceptions to it, but I think the way it's maybe the way it's meant to be, or maybe the way it often does function is sex is is sort of the entry point for that vulnerability for men, right? So 
feeling deeply connected sexually can often open the door for vulnerability and transparency in a lot of other ways. Now, it doesn't always work that way because sometimes, you know, they'll still be guarded after sex and that, but I think often it can, right? So sex becomes the beginning point for that vulnerability, that connection. And when you feel sexually connected to your partner, to your spouse, then all of a sudden your men, I think, are more likely to open up. Now, maybe I'm wrong on that. It's a theory that I've kind of toyed with and and, and held. But then I think women are kind of the exact other way around, right? Like, yeah, women typically it's like, you want me to be sexually vulnerable and transparent, but you're not even gonna tell me how your day was. It's like, yeah, good luck with that, right? Like, it doesn't work that way. Now, what I've said to couples is like, that dynamic can either be really, really good or really, really frustrating, right? Because if it's not working, you're moving apart from each other because you know, he's not opening up, you know, emotionally, mentally, and all these other ways. And so why in the world, how can he expect me to be open sexually? And on the other hand, well, she doesn't ever want to come close sexually. So how can she expect me to be open in all these other ways? And so it can actually drive a wedge. But when it works well, it's like both are are sort of opening up in different ways. And and then, you know, that leads to this connection. As you were talking and, and talking about how the way that like men view sex as sort of the gateway and, and women sort of almost view the vulnerability as the gateway, it made me think about the first opening minutes of Greece, you know, the musical Greece mm-hmm. with John Travolta and Olivia Newton-John. They're on the beach. They're in love. They're su- right. summer love, right? They're having a right, great time. Right. They're rolling around in the sand. Oh, Danny, I'm going to miss you. And she stays and 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 they see each other at that pep rally. It's like, Danny, I've got a surprise for you. And he's like, oh my God, Sandy. And as soon as his friends are like, wait, what? He was like, oh yeah, no, hey, it's cool. Right, Whatever, right. lady. It is just like this exact opposite. And it's like, it really shows kind of purity culture. And I, I use Greece as an example, because I feel like most people have seen Greece, but it <laughs> is that it's like this, as soon as the other males in the group made it a negative thing that he was being emotionally vulnerable. Right. He pulled back. Exactly oh, right. whatever, baby girl. Yeah. Hey, hey. Like there's this episode of The Simpsons where Nelson, the bully, right? The big tough kid. Finally, he's showing his little sensitive side with little Lisa. And, and then all of a sudden, you know, the other bullies circle around and see it. And then, oh, all of a sudden he changes, right? And it's like, that's exactly how it works. Same. Same yeah. exact thing. So the other, you know, to address the other side of purity culture, because that's one dynamic, right? It's that idea that culturally we've limited sexual vulnerability and transparency to, you know, it's it's like sexual free-for-all, but we've isolated it from the broader emotional intimacy, the vulnerability of whole self, what I call whole person intimacy, whole person vulnerability. But the other side of it that I think purity culture gets so wrong is that it fails to advance and promote the biblical vision of the goodness of sex. Like, that's totally inconsistent with the biblical narrative. Like, I mean, the book of Song of Songs, it's it's always interesting because Song of Songs is one of these books that's been interpreted in a lot of different ways throughout church history. And for a long time, it's been interpreted, we say, very allegorically. In other words, quick overview, the book is, is essentially it's love poetry, and it's very graphic, it's very descriptive, and but for a long time, the church has not known what do you do with that. He kisses me with the kisses of his mouth. And it's like, well, wait a minute, that can't be biblical. So what the church has often done is said, well, this is a metaphor. It's talking about Christ and the church. Now, you know, there is a little bit of that in there. But the overall message, I think, if you jump to that, 
you're skipping over the most obvious and plain meaning, which is this is not only love poetry, but it's very graphic and very explicit love poetry. Like if you actually take the time to read into the metaphors and the languages, there's a couple of things that you begin to see. One of them is that this book is describing in some parts, it's describing very graphic sexual activity between a husband and a wife. It's describing some would contend, say, oral sex between the man and the woman, or there's a part where, and again, I don't know how, you know, graphic or explicit I can be, but there's a part where both the the man and the woman are describing the sex, like penis and vagina of the other person in very like graphic and poetical language. Spring is in the air, and with that comes spring cleaning, especially those closets. I am beyond guilty of keeping pieces around that I no longer wear, I'm hoping to fit into again, or I just can't seem to get rid of for whatever reason my brain uses to justify the hanger space. But this year, I am implementing the one-year rule and spring cleaning my wardrobe with the help of Quince. As a sponsor of Life After MLM, shopping with Quince is a great way to support the show and get some cute new items to treat yourself once the purge is over too. Once you put your seasonal and holiday items in the back of the closet, it's time to purge what's left and see what can be donated and what needs to be retired for good. It's only then that you can organize your keepers and see where you can amp up your style for the coming year. And that's where Quince comes in. By partnering directly with top factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing, Quince cuts the cost out of the middleman and passes the savings on to us at 50 to 80% less than similar brands which means you can stretch your dollar and save on great staple pieces that will last through at least a few spring cleanings. Indulge in affordable luxury. Go to quince.com MLM for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com MLM to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com MLM. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games. So it's like, here's this book. It's a book that's entirely devoted and dedicated to the goodness and the enjoyment and the playfulness and the fun and the excitement of sexual arousal, sexual enjoyment, sexual satisfaction. And sort of the icing on the cake is that this book opens with an overture from the woman, which... You know, when you think of purity culture, what is purity culture? Purity culture essentially says, listen, women, like we said before, your husbands, your boyfriends, they are these oversexed, uncontrollable sexual beasts, and you'd better make sure to control them. And the subtext of that says they're the ones who have sexual desire. 
And you as a woman, you know, sure, give them whatever they want, whenever they want it. But your sexual arousal, satisfaction, enjoyment really doesn't matter here because it's all about him. And it's like, wait a minute, where did that come from? It's not biblical, you know, because again, in here, it's like you get this woman in a culture that, mind you, was quite patriarchal. Here, the woman speaks up and says, essentially, she's pursuing, she's sexually pursuing her husband. And she's desiring and wanting sexual enjoyment with her husband. It's like, well, that's countercultural both then and today, right? Like, where did that come from? And so it's like this, you know, here's this book essentially that gives us permission and encouragement to really, you know, for both men and women, but, you know, maybe the in this context to be heard for the woman that says, go enjoy sexual pleasure pursue it it's something that you were created and designed for so you know it's quite remarkable that way it's really interesting that there's a whole book about getting it on and having a good time and the church is like no it's allegorical it's how you should love jesus you should love jesus this way the same way that jesus loves the church and you should love your wife it's it's this is how it is it's 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 wild to me that you can have it like in writing Yep. And that purity culture comes in, I don't know, what, yep. 1940s, 1950s, and says, no, 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 that's not what that means. That's exactly it. It's it's so counterculture. It's so strange. Like, it's it's like the church has just not known what to do with this. And it's like, we, we don't want that message to get out. We don't want to kindle these fires that might be unquenchable. And it's like, you know, now there's, again, there's a place for modesty and and biblically there's a recognition that there are boundaries, but I would say that number one, there are always boundaries, right? I mean, there's always, even non-religious people have boundaries and, you know, there's reasons for that, but the church has also maintained that there's, there's appropriate boundaries within sexuality. But within that, it's like, Go after this and pursue it because you're created for it. You're designed for it. And the church is, like I said, you know, there's there's no single book that's devoted, say, just to the topic of money. There's no single book that's devoted to the topic of, you know, leadership or whatever else you want to throw in there. But there's a whole book devoted, like, to sex and to the goodness of it. And and the language of it is, like I said, it's it's so graphic that, it you know, it's hard to escape that. It's like, well, why is that? You know, have we taken that to heart? It's so strange to me that they wouldn't embrace it and include it or in sermons and things like that to be like, enjoy it. Jesus says to enjoy it. Have a wonderful weekend. Like, I don't, it's so weird to me. It's there. Right. Why deny it? Why hide it other than control? Right. Control, I think is, is certainly, or maybe, maybe more discomfort, embarrassment, Right. So in other words, like I've preached from Song of Songs before. Those are hard sermons to preach because, you know, it's like in in our church, we've got people that read the scripture. So it's like, okay, I I preach the sermon. Someone else will read the text. And it's like, I'm always thinking, well, who is going to have to get stuck reading all this language about kissing me with the kisses of his mouth? And those are the tame passages, right? And it's because there's more of this this discomfort with the topic. So I'm I think control is some of it, right? I mean, you get purity culture, and it's about it is definitely it's control, or it's again it's that self righteousness thing, right? In in terms of Christian language, we talk about self righteousness and, and moralism is a way to it's a way to create a hierarchy. I follow the purity rules more than you do, so I'm more loved by Jesus than you are. And that is so toxic and so antithetical to what the gospel is. Like, like just a little side note, when we talk about purity in the biblical narrative, 
purity comes from Jesus, right? Like, like my purity is not because I've worked at it. It's not because I've earned it or attained it or achieved it in any way. It's like, that's what I always want to scream is you think that your purity comes from your behavior. It's like, no, Jesus makes you pure. Now we're called to live out of that. And we're called to, you know, there's in the Christian tradition, anyways, there are certain practices and things that would be off limits, but don't fool yourself and don't try to deceive yourself into thinking that you are making yourself pure because immediately what that does is it does create a sort of a a hierarchy of the more pure ones and the better ones. And all that does is it fuels this pride and it fuels this self-righteousness that is so horrible. And And of course, then it can be used to control people. And of course, it can be used to manipulate and to get people to fall in line. And it's it's so antithetical to the to the ideas of grace, which Christianity is supposed to be rooted in. It's a pipeline to feeling superior or having supremacy over others because God loves you more. Not just purity culture, but like faith manipulation and prosperity gospel. The same. I have a bigger house because Jesus loves me more than you. I have a better car. Right. Because my faith is stronger. It's built on the mindset of what, what we call works righteousness, which says what I do is what builds me up to God. And it leads to that superiority. But the other thing it does is it leads, and, and this is maybe not talked about as often, it leads to that despair, Right. So what happens if I'm, you know, if I'm trying really hard to follow all these rules and I don't quite feel like I'm measuring up? Well, I'm a lousy person then. So you want to talk about what holds a person back from being vulnerable? What makes it difficult for a person to be transparent? Well, it's that notion of shame. And shame is just a way of saying you're not enough, right? You're not good enough. Yeah. So, okay, you're not pure enough. You know, you, right, you're damaged goods. If you have sex outside of marriage, you are damaged goods. There was that analogy that went around, like, I I don't know how often it was done. It was done at, you know, purity culture rallies or whatever, but, you know, where the rose is passed around, like the speaker gives a rose to someone here, pass this around to everyone. And and then by the end of the, the talk, the rose comes back up to the speaker and it's like, now who wants this rose? Because of course the rose has been handled by everyone and it's like all, you know, it's falling apart and it's like, you know, the petals are all damaged. Who wants the rose? I thought you were going to do the chewing gum analogy. Like or, who wants a piece of chewed gum? I feel like the right. rose one being passed around the entire congregation and coming back all bent yeah. and broken is even worse than the chewing gum analogy. Yeah, I, I think so. Because, you know, you end up with it's it's damaged and it's falling apart. and And the message there is you are not enough because you've, you know, you've made all these mistakes and you failed. And that's, again, that's so antithetical to the gospel. The gospel says, well, who wants the rose? Jesus wants the rose, right? Like Jesus takes us and and makes us whole and forgives us and restores us. But the point in that is that those who fail and struggle, what are they left with? Like, if you are that quote unquote, if you're that rose, if you buy into that analogy and you're the one that's messed up a lot and you failed or, you know, how does that end up leaving you feeling? You're carrying those feelings of shame and guilt and inadequacy and worthlessness and it's devastating, right? Yeah. It's also very interesting because it's in every hierarchical structure. Like when there's people on top that are able to tell you that what you're doing below them isn't good enough and you'll never have what I have unless you do these steps because I know because I'm here. It goes into multi-level marketing too. This is exactly the same. Right. Yeah. In its proper context, it functions okay. Like, you know, leadership structures and that, but that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about where your worth is determined on what you do. And that, you know, that works as well, like you said, into every, you know, MLM, it works as prosperity gospel into purity culture, but into just general life, like moral behavior. Well, I'm, I'm better because I, you know, I don't watch filthy movies or I don't do this or I don't do that. And, and on and on it goes. And 
it's devastating, right? I mean, it it just there's an old saying, um, I forget who said it, but but the idea is that the ground is is supposed to be level at the foot of the cross, right? Which is a way of saying that by nature, you know, we might try to think that we're superior to others, but by nature, the, the gospel says we're all equally messed up and broken and fallen and sinful, right? There's not a single person who can claim an exemption for that save Jesus. That's what the gospel is all about. So how do you come to Jesus? It's like, yeah, everybody has to come broken, messed up, sinful, and acknowledge the only hope that I have is found in this person who on the cross becomes naked and ashamed for me, right? And he bears that away. And, you know, so so that, you know, that's kind of the Christian. It's, it's always interesting. There's this Maybe to return to the analogy or the story of the um, the Garden of Eden, there's this little detail in the gospel. So we fast forward, you know, long, long, long time from the beginning of the Bible to where Jesus has come and he's being arrested. He's once again, he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. So different garden, but still it's very clear he's back in a garden and he's being arrested. And then we're told in one of the gospels, I think it's in the gospel of Mark, where someone who was close to Jesus runs away from him. And then there's a strange little detail that we're told that he ran away naked. And it's like, well, that's an odd thing to include in in a story like this. Like who would put that in there? But what you begin to see is that I think what Mark is doing is he's taking you back to the Garden of Eden. He's saying, okay, the presence of God is once again coming into a garden. And once again, someone is fleeing away, terrified and naked, just like Adam and Eve did, right? The presence of God, suddenly they're vulnerable, they're afraid, they hide. But this time, Jesus does not run away, right? So now you have someone who's in the garden who doesn't run away. Instead, he's lifted up on the cross. He's literally stripped naked. He's ashamed. He's bearing our guilt and all of that. And so he's reenacting the garden, but he's staying. He's enduring the the judgment of God for sin so that we can be restored. So that then that intimacy that we're meant to have, we're able to enter into that, or at least we're supposed to. And that's what gives us the, you might say, the power to do that. So we can do it without shame so that we know that all of our vulnerabilities have been taken away by Jesus. And so we're supposed to be able to, you know, open up and be transparent. Hearing you say that and seeing what I see all the time, it's their exact opposite statements. Like what you're telling me and what I see in purity culture, it doesn't make any sense. Right. It's a complete opposite. What you're saying is the opposite of what is being taught in some of these more, I don't know, uh, I don't, what do, what do we call it? Well, Christian nationalists? Well, yeah, label, labels are always hard, right? I mean, because, but, but they tend to be the more, yeah, I struggle because I want to, on the one hand, I want to say fundamentalist, but I'm not sure that's always fair either. But they tend to be more, I'm going to use the term works righteousness versions of religion because that, you know, which is a more of a mouthful, but it's maybe a little more specific in that it says these are corners of religion that say you are what you do. And of course, in purity culture, you the code is defined by sexual activity or sexual behavior and or you know your modesty or whatever else. And it exactly it is completely antithetical to what the gospel is all about. I mean, the gospel points you to the way that you can have this whole person intimacy, vulnerability, transparency and the enjoyment of sex in a way that liberates us. And the works righteousness approach says you can't have it unless you earn it and achieve it for yourself. And most of you never will quite get there. So you're always going to be feeling like you fall short. And those of you that kind of get up there are going to look down on those who are underneath you. It's so interesting because it really is, like you said, so much about shame and about being shamed and about being put in your place and like knowing where you are in the hierarchy of this. It's just like, I just see another pyramid scheme. Yeah, 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 right. It is, you know, I'm not an expert in MLM, but it does seem, you know, it is this, you work your way up and your merit is established by 
what you do and you know how many people are working underneath you so it's like yeah and the stuff i've seen on like lula row and whatever else is like yeah it's very clearly a a works righteousness sort of the people at the top are prized more esteemed valued more and the people in the bottom not so much yeah right yeah the people at the top can get away with murder i don't i don't yeah. know if anyone's ever gotten away with murder like this you know but they can get away with whatever they want We've told yeah. stories about that. And the people at the bottom, they use the wrong color. They use the wrong font. They get a little too mouthy and they are made an example. of. <laughs> yep. Right. Exactly right. So uh, let's talk about sort of like where purity culture, how did it come into this country? Like how, what are the origins of it? Like when did it start? Because I look back on my life, not being raised in a church and I see purity culture everywhere in my life. I see it everywhere. I have conversations with people and I go, oh my God, I had that same conversation with my mom or my dad always used to say that or just weird things like ways to make me feel shameful, but not intentionally shameful. It just was sort of like something that you said, you know, like you were talking about, like if you have sex, you could get an STD. If you have Mm -hmm. sex, you could get pregnant. I remember also, which we talked a little bit about before we hit record, but I remember growing up in the eighties. And th- maybe this is when purity culture really came into my life, because when I was growing up as a child, we had the AIDS crisis. And I remember Ryan White, who was yep. a-, a boy who had gotten AIDS because of, I believe, a blood transfusion. Right. And I remember watching him literally die. Like he he ended up dying. Yeah. I remember watching him on the news, like just as a child, I was probably eight years old. And I remember thinking right. to myself, I'm never going to have sex. I'm never, I'm never going to, no, right. I, I don't want right. to die of AIDS. An eight-year-old child thinking to herself, I don't want to die of AIDS at eight years old. Right. Like, where does this yeah. come from? So I think I, I'm not an expert on the origins of purity culture. So, I, you know, with that, that's a, an important disclaimer. But here's my observation. I think there's a couple of strands to it. Out of the 60s, you know, the 60s was, was a time, I think, very comparable to our own right? You got this massive social upheaval that's centered around race and politics and even like police brutality. And like, so all those social factors are in play and you get this massive shift from, you know, so post-war generation, people essentially wanted to come home from the war and raise their families in a secure and stable environment. So they move out to the suburbs and they just, you know, they, in some ways they'd lost some time to the war. And so it's like, you know what, we got to get on and start having our little stable families and yeah, three, four, five, six, seven kids or whatever it was. Right. Cause again, birth control is not a thing yet, which is important, or at least it's not a very, it's not a very readily accessible thing. Yeah. And- both my mom's side of the family and my dad's side of family, both of them were one of six and they were both baby boomers, right. Born from, I think a couple of, my aunts and uncles were born in the 40s, like during the yep. war. Yep. But my mom was the last one on her end of the family and she was born in 1954. So we're talking the 40s and the 50s. My yep. grandparents are having six kids each. Yep, that's right. That's right. Yeah, my uh, on my dad's side, I think there were eight. And then on my mom's, there were five. And that was about the same time, 50s, 40s and 50s. Because again, like, okay, number one, you've lost this time to the war we've got to get on with this if we're going to have kids and grandkids. But it was also just assumed, like you just have kids, you have sex. And that's an important social dynamic is that sex was not separated from childbirth, right? That was like the two went together. And so it creates this sort of stable, you know, Mayberry type environment. Now we shouldn't, in my opinion, we shouldn't be too quick to judge that. I mean, it's easy for us looking from where we're sitting to be, you know, but that, you know, there was like all things, there's good and there's bad in, in that. Well, the 60s roll around, and this was a time of, like, massive social change in terms of, you know, rights and equality, 
And some of that was really, really good. Like, you know, it was about time, Civil Rights Act. That was actually kind of an important thing. You know, Rosa Parks and MLK, those were really, really good things that needed to happen. And in that time, you also have the Stonewall riots in New York City, which from a Christian vantage point, actually, there's some of that that was really, really good because homosexuality was very much underground in the sense of uh, it was stigmatized and people were treated really cruelly, If right? So so actually to give gay people civil rights was actually a good thing, right? But in all of that, of course, was the sexual revolution. And it was this idea that love and sex can actually create this utopian community, right? So you get these communes where people are gathering together all in the same place. And it was about free love and acceptance and just you know, nudist colonies if in on the more extreme end of things. And it was meant to be this this environment where everybody just shared everything. And it was really this attempt to bring heaven to earth and to put it in spiritual terms. It was like to create this utopian Garden of Eden kind of thing where we're all like, you know, we're all sort of happy and, and free. But but of course that led to a lot of excess as well. Now the birth control pill is not an excess, but that was introduced around that time, which then said, okay, you can have sex and you don't need to worry about getting pregnant anymore. And so all of a sudden, one of the biggest natural, it's not a consequence, although it it sort of is, but one of the natural things that that people would say was, okay, look, we need to be careful about having sex because we don't want to, you know, we don't want to have a kid yet. So that would naturally sort of be a, a safeguard, maybe is a better term, although maybe not. Anyways, that comes into play where all of a sudden that's not there anymore. So there's nothing really stopping you from having sex. And so, yeah, free love and the summer of love in, what was it, 1968 or 69? Everyone goes to San Francisco, metaphorically, and then everyone goes to Woodstock, and it was like this just big free-for-all. You know, that had its problems as well. But until that point, you know, until it was about the, the 1980s, all of a sudden, there's this outbreak of AIDS. And that changes everything, because now, okay, now you're not worried about getting pregnant, but you are worried about dying from this disease that nobody really knows anything about. So again, it's easy for us now to sit back and say, well, how how foolish those people were. But you got to remember, this was something we didn't understand a thing about. We didn't understand its origins. We didn't understand um, how it was spread. And so, yeah, there's a lot of fear surrounding that. There's a lot of, of concern that people are going to die just, you know, married couple just from having sex. And so, uh, no, it was stigmatized. And, and there was a lot of bad things, of course, that went on right after, you know, as, as part of that. And a lot of things that are sad to have seen happening, stigmatizing innocent people and stigmatizing gay people and so on and so forth. But I think that those two forces together then give way to this reactionary movement that says, you know what, you know, we've seen the excesses of the 60s. We've seen this sort of free love movement where everything, everyone's just having sex with everybody all the time. And we've also seen now this potential like, you know, death sentence for people who are sexually promiscuous. We have the solution. So again, it's from Christian terminology. It's like, it says, we can create the solution to this. We can fix this problem on our own if we just follow these rules. 
Now, I don't exactly know how did it get to the point where where women are sort of presented as the people who are, you know, these sexually pure people and men are these like sexual beasts that need to be tamed. Like, I don't know how we got to that point, because that's obviously a key part of purity. But that seems to be a distortion that's really based on that idea of male versus female, right? Like men are these untamed beasts and their pleasure you know, women, you've got to calm them down because otherwise they're going to be like reckless and out of control. And and then you get into all these other distortions from this. So I suspect that's kind of how it came about, although I'd be open to correction on that or, or nuance on that if, if others, you know, know more. I mean, I followed you the whole thing. I was like, yeah, the free love movement, San Francisco, Woodstock. all Yeah. I, I, if you've ever seen Forrest Gump, they, they yep. talk about that as a big <laughs> part right. of the movie, doing all that's that right. as well. So it's very interesting. And Jenny gets AIDS and dies in that right. movie as well. So right. very interesting. I don't think you're wrong. <laughs> there might be more context I'm sure to add. Right. I'm sure there's more to it. I'm sure it's but, much more. Um, it seems very plausible. I've completely followed that. I I remember feeling, but here's the other thing, like my family, they didn't really subscribe to purity culture for themselves. It was more like protecting the children. Not that I was a promiscuous eight-year-old. I mean, give me a break. But at the same time, it was very, like, it was a lot of fear-based stuff. That's right. And not a lot of open conversation. Sometimes like a, like a funny song or a, a little quip. And I was like, is this, is this a sex talk or what is happening? Yeah, that's She's, fascinating, isn't it? Yeah. Because you're, you know, your family is by no means alone in that. Like, how do you, I still remember, you know, the first time we were sitting around our dinner table and in, in with my kids now, and it's like, yeah, the topic of sex somehow came up and it's like, well, because my parents did a pretty good job. I, I, you know, I don't really find fault in them, but they were, you know, they, they did the thing that they gave me. It was in my day, it was a James Dobson book. And a lot of people will know it's like, you know, it's got this kid sitting on a caution construction sign that said, you know, puberty ahead or something like that. And it was like, it was a very famous book. And it's like, okay, read this. And and if you have any questions, ask us. Now, my parents were right. a little more than that, but that was a common thing. And, you know, you still run into that. And so it's like when my kids bring it up, it's like, well, the first time, you know, they were young, they were probably four or five. And I was like, well, we got to do better. We've got to be, you know, because it's always been a thing for us. We want to be as open as we can. But the thing is, like, the, if you start going down that road, yeah, you're going to have some really awkward conversations. You know, my kids now are in their teens. And yeah, they they don't often come out with explicit questions, but it's like the topic comes up and we've, you know, I, I'm not sure this is always the best approach either. You know, my wife and I've had some mixed opinions on it, but, you know, it's like, okay, if you raise it in a joking way, like you're trying to just push buttons. Okay, well, we're going to talk about it then. And, you know, there's good and bad to that. I I think I'm not, but yeah, as a result of that, you know, it's like, okay, here's a conversation about masturbation because, you know, you sort of alluded to it. So let's talk about that. I take it to mean you have some questions and, and yeah, then we get into some pretty open conversations because I, I think that's the other thing. And I don't exactly know why, other than the, the sort of the embarrassment factor that parents have is that we just, we don't talk about these things. And I'm a, you know, I'm a strong proponent of talking about them, not in a way of being, you know, cause there's, I think a right way and a wrong way to do it. But, you know, it's like it starts with using the right terms for your body. Like, no, it's not a pee-pee, right? You can learn that at a pretty young age and whatever other terms there are out there. Like, let's just talk about them and call them what they are. You know, let's just be sort of matter of fact about the fact that, yeah, your parents do have sex, by the way. And, you know, okay, we're not going to, you know, there's stuff that's private and off limits. But there's also stuff like, yeah, we're we're not going to treat this like it's some sort of horrible, ashamed and embarrassing topic. It's really interesting that you brought up the James Dobson book, uh, <laughs> because I don't think the book I got was a James Dobson book, but it was a book. 
I, I got a book. Yeah. This is just like you, yeah. right? I came home yeah. from school yeah. one day and it's like sitting on my bed. No conversation. Yeah. 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 Just a right. book on my That's bed. Right. That's and it was right. like getting to know my changing body or yeah, something yeah. like that. And I'm like, that's right. Cringe. You know, I was like, yeah. um, what is this? Why isn't there a conversation? Why is this just like on my bed? Mom, yeah. what is this? And she's like, oh, it's a book. You can read it if yeah. you have any questions. And That's I was right. like, my first question is, why is this on my bed? <laughs> why is this step one? Why haven't we had a conversation? Right. I remember having right. sex ed in fourth grade. And then yeah. we moved and I had sex ed again in in fifth grade, super awkward having it twice. Yeah. And then again in high school, yeah. I don't feel like it was super informative, except for being like, this is what it looks like. And this is what it's called. Right. And this is how it right. works. And that was really it. I remember playing in high school. We played an STD game. This goes into purity culture too, right? So yeah, let me tell you guys this. This is super fun. This is a secret I thought I would take to the grave and everybody in that class knows too. But we had, it was a summer school class because I was like, I'm not taking sex ed for a whole semester. Like I'm going to get it out in six weeks. I have nothing going on this summer. I'm going to do it like this. So I took it in summer school. It was a very mixed bag of students because it was a lot of kids that had like forgotten to take it. So there was a lot of like people that were going to be seniors and there was a couple like it was just a very mixed bag of people. Right. right. <laughs> very, very. <laughs> and on the very last day, we were going to play an STD game. So the teacher said on the last day, everybody, you guys can bring in a box of condoms, as many condoms as you want. You're just going to bring in condoms and we're going to play this STD game. She gave everybody a little piece of paper and it had like, you either had, you were clean or you had AIDS. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and then you had a list and you'd have to go around and talk to anybody and say, do you want to have sex? And they'd be like, yeah. And so then you would write each other's name on your little dance card. Right. Mm -hmm. And if you had a condom, you could then like take one condom out and say, well, we used a condom again. It's not hundred percent accurate. So you could write, yeah, we used a condom. People were still like, I don't even care. I don't even have any, right. Some people brought huge boxes. Some people brought like just a few, everybody's going around. We probably did this for like an hour, super awkward. Right. And then at the end we go, okay, so who had AIDS? And like two people are like, I did. And they're like, who had sex with these right, people? Right, right. Like the whole class raised their hand. Oh, who used a condom? So then it's like, okay, anybody that didn't use a condom, you all have AIDS now. Okay, who had sex yeah. with those people? And it was just, it was, like, it was so awkward. And then if you did use a condom, she's like, okay, well, you have, you know, like a certain percent chance. So roll this dice to see if the right, condom right. worked. Like, oh, and I'm just like, <laughs> what is happening? And then we had to like look at pictures of the STDs. It was just, it felt like comedy traffic school. Is what it yeah, felt yeah, right, like. right, right. It was right. not any more informative than anything I had learned in the fourth grade or the fifth grade or in that book I got. Right. Um, and it was awkward, but I'm so thankful it was over the summer and not in <laughs> class where I'd have to see these people all the time at school. But, for a but whole right. Time and, and the message from that, like the fear that's driving that, right? Like that's weds together sex and this terrifying fear of, of STDs. And the reason you're not supposed to have sex is because you don't want to get a disease right now. You know, in the Christian context, there's reasons that that Christians have for saying, look, sex is meant for marriage, but that should not be a fear driven thing, right? Like, like that should be a thing that, you know, it's not because, well, you don't want an STD. Cause like, what does that say? Well, once you're married, go out and it's okay if you get an STD, like what in the world, right? It doesn't make any sense. 
and or pregnancy, right? That's the other one. Like you don't want to get pregnant or get someone pregnant. And so then it's like, how do you flip that switch? So, okay, fine. You've taken summer school about STDs and you've heard the youth group talks or the talks, well, you don't want to get pregnant. And so, and now you get married and it's like, now you're supposed to flip that switch. That's like, wow, sex is supposed to be amazing. It's like, yeah, good luck with that. Right. It just, it doesn't really work very well. I mean, I can imagine so many young couples who are like, I'm going to get married because I want to have sex because I can't have sex without being married and getting into really young marriages that they probably don't want to be in that end up maybe not surviving. And it's it's just dangerous to to make something taboo. That is the reason all of us are here, right? Like humans don't just have sex for procreation. We have sex for intimacy. We have sex for pleasure. We have sex out of boredom. Like there's a lot of reasons that people do that. It's just interesting to me. Yeah, no, that's that's exactly right. So what you also end up with, you end up with people who are sort of wanting to get married. So they get married young because they want to have sex. But here's the other illusion that I think has been created by purity culture. If you wait to have sex, it's going to be mind blowing the first time you have a go at it. Right. Like, you know, wait to have sex. And and then on your wedding night, boy, oh boy, you are in for a treat. And it's like, yeah, no, that doesn't work. And there's all kinds of reasons why. But it, you know, it might take days, weeks, even months to actually figure this out. And here's the spiritual side of it that can come out. I did all this for God. I waited. I did what he wanted me to do. I didn't have sex before I was married. I waited. I'm saving myself to be unwrapped by my husband, quote unquote, because that's that's the line, right? And now we can't quite have sex yet. It's not working. Why is God doing this to me? I deserve better. It's like, because it's, again, it's that self-righteousness thing. It's that climb the ladder. And if you do that, God rewards you. And so if you, you know, if you save yourself for marriage, you're going to have mind-blowing orgasms on your wedding night. It's like, yeah, no, that doesn't work, right? Like, right. I wonder work. the percentage of people who actually got to have sex on their wedding night because they were not so tired from getting married that day and having a huge party. And, right, you know, right. I think exactly. we fell asleep on the couch. I was still in my wedding dress and we watched an episode of Glee. And I woke <laughs> up, I'm like, oh my God, we should probably go to bed. Help me get out of this like humongous yeah. dress. Like yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. it's not this fantasy of fireworks and rose petals and champagne right. and a fancy hotel with room service that says congratulations, just married. Here's your chocolate roses. You know what I mean? Like there's so much build up to this that there really isn't anything but disappointment. Right. And then to build on that, it's like, okay, now once you're married, now you've got to figure out how to make this whole sex thing work, not just physically, but like what happens when, you know, here's another stereotype. Okay. She has higher sex drive than me. Okay, I'm speaking metaphorically just to be clear, okay? I'm not describing my own marriage just so we're clear because my wife is going to hear this. She'll kill me if she thinks I'm disclosing our own, you know, private life. But broad brush here, right? So the the stereotype says, well, men are those untamed sexual beasts. Women, you've got to tame your husband. The subtext there is women don't have a high sex drive. Their sexual gratification is not really important. But what happens when that's actually reversed? And that's becoming a more common thing that that actually is being spoken about is, okay, well, she's the higher drive spouse. She has a higher sex drive than he does. And he won't have sex as often as she wants or needs it. And it's like, well, that creates this problem that, again, to talk about a countercultural sort of problem or or a problem that is just doesn't fit the norms of, of what our society said, what do you do with that? Like, where do you go for help with that kind of thing? Or, you know, so it, it goes on, right? It's it's very interesting. The whole topic is very interesting. And again, it's it's such a normal thing, but we've made it so taboo and so 
uncomfortable to talk about, then I mean, right. I even have to put content warnings on this episode to be like, just so you know, right. we're going to talk about LCX right. today. Like, right. it's just so, and I say it all the time. I'm like, how do you think you got here? Right. How do you think we're all here? Right. What do you mean? Yeah, you there know? was always. It was always that stereotype in my mind as a kid, like, okay, I've got four, three siblings, so there's four of us kids. So, okay, my parents had sex four times and plus probably once on the wedding night. So five times is a thing, right? You just have this mindset like it's, but you're right. I think, you know, you're, you're talking about the taboo that we have surrounding this. And I do think that is really important. First of all, just, you know, to talk about it, to be open in families, to be honest and transparent and matter of fact. And I would say, you know, this is where the church also needs to do a better job. I mean, I'm speaking from as a pastor and because what I'm one of the themes here is I think and maybe that's when you talk about the origins of purity culture, I think, especially, but even more broadly than that, which is what would it have looked like if the church did a better job promoting this healthy biblical vision for sex? What would it be like if youth group talks on sex were not just you don't want to have an STD, you don't want to get pregnant, you don't, you know, don't fornicate, etc. But what if it was about here's God's design for sex? It is meant to be mind blowing. It's meant to be enjoyable. Enjoyable, it's meant to be fulfilling, and it's meant to be this connection and this transparency between two people that reflects the covenant relationship between God and his church. So those kinds of things, like how would that have been a corrective? And maybe, like I said, I think that's where the church needs to do a better job of, of avoiding that taboo, right? And, and casting this better vision for what sex is meant to be. Well, Pastor Rob, maybe you have to be the one to do that. Maybe you can do like Wednesday nights, church after dark and do song of songs <laughs> and be like, hey, we're going to be talking about <laughs> sex and how beautiful and wonderful yeah. and positive it is and how it's not this abomination and this sinful act. Like no. it's a beautiful thing. I think anybody yep. listening who's had really good sex is like, yeah, you know right. what I mean? And just That's so right. you know, really good sex doesn't always happen with the person you're madly in love with. Sometimes yep. you just have a really good connection. It's just, it's just so weird that it's so taboo. I'm trying to not make it such a taboo subject. I want my girls to be able to come to me and ask me questions, even if they make me uncomfortable. Yeah, Because yeah. I'm trying to be the parent that I didn't have in those certain instances. I had great parents and they provided a lot of really cool things for me. They lacked in a lot of spaces and well, I don't fault them. They just right. they didn't were, know they were any products better. of their culture, right? They were they were very much a part of the culture that they were they, they grew up in. You know, it's it's interesting on that topic. I write for an online um it's kind of a blog that writes about marriage, parenting, grandparenting. And I'm sort of like the sex writer on that. Like that's sort of the unofficial label, which yeah, good, bad, or otherwise, I don't know. But I wrote an article back in 2016, and it was called The Biblical Approach to Masturbation. That article, when it when it first was published, it spiked the web traffic onto the website, like to the point where the webmaster went to my editor and said, have you seen these numbers? You know, so, so it's a blog that's targeted towards a Christian audience. And what that tells me is like, there is this real desire to know and to, to at least talk about it. But where do you go? Like, because you talk about a taboo topic, like there's one for you. <laughs> and it was, I don't know if it still is, but for years, it was the number one viewed site on the entire page. And I'm not saying that to brag, because I'm, I'm sure it's not the most eloquent thing written on the topic, but I'm just saying it to highlight this fact that these taboos exist and people want to talk about this stuff. They've got questions. So how do we... 
you know, how do we break past that? And I think it is important to be open about it. I think so, too, because we also have to think that if our kids want to learn something and we're not willing to give them a safe space to learn it, they're going to find it somewhere else. And they're right. going to find it in the school friends that probably are, have bad information or they're going to Google it, which is going to send them on a whole different right. thing. So even in terms of protecting your kids, being open and having open, honest conversations about hard topics like masturbation, sex, anything like that, falling in love, what it feels like when you love somebody, any of that, to not have those conversations with your children is a huge disservice because someone else will have them with your children. Right. That's exactly right. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I just, I want to say thank you for emailing me and for having this conversation. It was so good. I hope everybody that stuck around was like, I'm really glad I listened to that. And just tell everybody that skipped it to come back and listen to it. Let's do some rapid fire questions about purity culture. Oh, okay. Sure. Let's do it. Give me a word that encompasses how you feel about purity culture. Oppressive. Give me a warning to maybe a parent who is engaging in this purity culture stuff and doing a disservice to their children. Um, what would you tell them? From a Christian vantage point, recalibrate your perspective to what the Bible really talks about and not just the top-down works righteousness approach. Give me one of the hardest lessons that you think people might learn by subscribing to purity culture. The hardest lessons that people would learn if they subscribe to purity culture, they will learn one way or another that their worth should not be defined by what they do. I think I'm saying that the way I want to say it, I think, (laughs) because that can be a painful lesson to learn if you learn it the hard way, right? If you fall into that despair. And so give me a positive side effect to talking to your children about these topics. I, I think there's a lot of them. They become shaped by a healthy worldview, assuming that your worldview is healthy, right? It it's formative for them in, in very good ways. I completely agree. I it's really honestly like this is maybe one of my favorite conversations that I've had. It was very enlightening. I love having it come from a Christian perspective because I think it really opens up this conversation to people who identify as Christian and kind of feel this way already and see this sort of faith manipulation, white Christian nationalism thing that's happening and are rejecting it and saying, that's not the Jesus I love. That's not the religion I want to be a part of. You know, and if, if that's what your listeners come away with, then I'll feel really good about that because I, I hear so much about purity culture and it just gets lumped in with all of Christianity. And I, I just, my goal is to say there's a better way of looking at things here and, and that I think is actually more biblical, not less. And I think it becomes better then. So so I, I hope that's what I've tried to get across. I, I feel passionately about this. And I, I just want to thank you for having me on the show. You know, my, my wife is like, you've got to reach out or you've got to email. I'm like, I don't know, like, you know, hearing from a pastor who wants to sort of force his way onto a show is like, no, I, but she was pretty insistent. So I'm really glad I did. And thank you so much. It's It's been an honor to have the chance to talk with you and, and to be on the program. Well, thank you, Pastor Rob. And thank you, Amy, as well, for listening and for being a fan and for opening up this conversation. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks, Roberta. Thank you so much for listening to Life After MLM. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and share. And follow us on social media at Life After MLM Podcast and my advocacy at The Real Roberta Blevins. You can find all of the links to the social accounts in our show notes. And if you just listened to that incredible story and you thought, oh my God, I have a story just like that that needs to be told, 
hit me up, therealrobertablevins at gmail.com. I would love to have you on the show to share your story and start your journey in life after MLM. See you next time, Hans. Thank you.